Nehemiah chapter 9. That's what we're going to cover tonight as we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible. And we're going to cover all of chapter 9 tonight as we look at this wonderful prayer um, that is given before the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 9. While you're turning there, just a couple things. Uh, Friday night, I believe, is youth. And that's what we have. And um, so there is youth night this Friday, uh, 6.30 to 8.30. So parents, just remind you of that. They'll be reminding the kids upstairs in class. Also, uh, ladies, 8.30 on Saturday, ladies' breakfast. So have a great time. And um, eggs and meat dishes will be provided for that. And uh, if you want to bring something to share, you can do that. So 8.30 uh, this Saturday. Have a great time. And then ladies, 55 and over luncheon on Tuesday. The third, that is coming up this Tuesday, 11.30 here at the church. So again, meat and drinks are provided. Sign up at the information desk if that applies to you and um, for planning purposes. I want to remind you that uh, we are going to be continuing in John's Gospel this Sunday, 8.30 and 10.30, our service times. We just started last week. John's Gospel is the most read book in all of the Bible. And uh, we're really looking forward to, on Sunday mornings, doing a verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So we got through the first 18 verses, and we'll cover verses 19 through 51 this Sunday. Invite somebody out to Calvary Chapel as we study John's Gospel. And I just want to encourage you, because as I mentioned to you on Sunday, that John's Gospel, 99 times the word believe is used in John's Gospel. And we have the great statements, the ego amin statements, the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus makes, showing that he's divine, he's divinity, he's, um, that he is God. And John starts out in verse 1, of course, showing that Jesus existed from all eternity past, and, and uh, the word became God and is God, and it became flesh and, and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. But we really see that John focuses on proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the source of eternal life, that he is the Savior of the world, the light of the world, the door, the vine. And so invite somebody out, all right? Particularly be praying for uh, somebody that perhaps uh, that's on your heart that isn't a believer because um, one of the things that we encourage people, and perhaps you do too, uh, is when people are really thinking about God and and, um, wondering about Jesus, One of the books that we point them to is John's Gospel because it makes it very clear that Jesus is the Son of God and that um, those who believe on his name uh, receive eternal life. And so bring them, bring your uh, unsaved family and friends and neighbors, whoever it might be, pray about during these next weeks who it is that you might bring because we're going to see that Jesus is going to claim to be uh, the one that gives living water. Uh, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Um, all those, uh, again, statements of I am that he makes. And it's a wonderful opportunity for them to see very clearly who Jesus is. So be praying about that. And, um, and we're looking forward to what uh, God is going to do with that study and, and encouraging us as well as we go through John's gospel. I uh, also want to remind you that on the 8th, we will have one family service, 930 outside in the back, uh, the celebrator anniversary so uh, it's going to be a family service and uh, if you'd like to help out 
with setting up with that. You can sign up at the information desk. And also don't forget that the day after that starts Vacation Bible School, the 9th through the 13th, 9.30 to noon. So get your kids registered. Take some of those flyers. Invite other kids that you know. And um, we're really looking forward to it. And be in prayer, too, uh, concerning Vacation Bible School because it's a great opportunity to really minister to the kids. And many of you perhaps have a, a memory or you have a testimony how when you were uh, a child, how you went to Vacation Bible School, and that touched your heart in a very deep way, in a very wonderful way. And uh, so we want to be able to do that um, as we have the kids coming during that week of 9th through the 13th. Moses and the Wilderness Journey is the theme. And uh, so wonderful lessons for the kids, crafts, games, um, all kinds of things that they're going to be doing that's going to bless them and encourage them in the things of the Lord. So tonight we do have a Bible study, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, you should be there. And Father, we ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word. And Father, again, we're thankful that we can come out on this summer night and we can be blessed and and look at your word and and study it. Help us make application. And and Lord, um, help our hearts to be stirred. Just as the people of Israel at this time, their hearts were stirred as the word of God was being read, um, as the word of God convicted their hearts and they were drawn close to you. And and Lord, uh, may we just experience your joy and your grace right now and um, and may we just draw close to you and um, learn of you. Uh, Again, your goodness and your faithfulness to us as we make application of the things that we're going to read. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, of course, Nehemiah, that he came to Jerusalem. And one of the things that we see in the book of Nehemiah, he's an incredible leader. He is um, a godly example of uh, a man that was used very effectively of the Lord. And he is the cupbearer to the king. He asked the king, uh, Artaxerxes, to go to Jerusalem because even though it had been nearly 100 years since the first decree by Cyrus, to come back to Jerusalem, and, and they did under the leadership of Zerubbabel. We saw that, of course, in the book of Ezra. And Zerubbabel comes back in about 538 B.C., and, and they would clear off the rubble. They would build the altar there and begin sacrifices and eventually build the temple, and that would begin the second temple period. And it would be almost 100 years later in 445 B.C., that we see that the wall had not been built around Jerusalem. It was very difficult. They were unprotected. It was, you know, the city still laid in rubble. And so Nehemiah, hearing that news, again, Nehemiah was born in captivity. He had never been to Jerusalem at that time. His brother Hanani comes and tells him, you know what, the city still uh, doesn't have a wall around it. And Nehemiah, that man that um, was so sensitive to the Lord and the things of God, had a heart for his brethren. He mourned and he wept and he prayed and he fasted for four months. And then in chapter 2, of course, we saw that he would ask the king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so the commands given at that time for him to do that. And he comes back and he says, hey, we got the, the uh, permission and the, um, the decree from the king that we can go ahead and do this. And so they said, let us rise up and let us, uh, you know, put our hands to this good work. And when the Lord has us building a wall that is doing his work as we are desiring to live for him and, and to serve him, 
always remember, as I've been emphasizing, that it is a good work. And even though they would begin to do that, opposition came against them, just like opposition will come against you and me from the enemy. And there was Tobiah and Sambalot that threatened them and bullied them and tried to get Nehemiah off the wall. But Nehemiah was one that he continued to do the work of the Lord. And even when the people were feeling uh, weak and they said, we can't do this, the rubble's too much, it was Nehemiah that would stand up and he would say, remember that God is great and awesome and you fight for your wives and fight for your brethren and, and, and fight for your children. And, and he's saying, fight the good fight of the Spirit as he stationed them in front of their homes with a trial in one hand and you know, a, a sword in the other. And, and he was such an encourager. And, and in 52 days, the wall would be built, as we saw in chapter 6, an absolute miracle of God. But you see, Nehemiah, he didn't just leave. He didn't pack up his, his donkey and say, well, I'm going to go back to be the cupbearer. You guys have the wall. But Nehemiah, more than anything, wanted to make sure that the spiritual priorities and aspects were there in place in Jerusalem so that the city and the nation could prosper once again. You see, he knew all about how they had gone off into captivity and because of their sin and disobedience and that Jerusalem at one time was a glorious city and he desired for uh, his people, the, the children of Israel, the house of Judah that, that had come back after the 70 years of captivity to flourish once again. And so he made sure that the spiritual aspects were in place. The Levites and the priests set up. He set up Hananiah, again his brother and Hananiah as leaders because he's going to be going back to the king here as we will see as we continue in the book of Nehemiah. And so these were men that were faithful men, uh, those who had proven character and, and faithful men that feared the Lord. They feared the Lord over fearing men. And so Nehemiah set the leadership there, and that's how we can be effective leaders, is one that we are faithful individuals to the Lord, and then we're ones that we fear God over fearing men. And I think that's very important that we remember that, because it reminds me of our recent study. Remember in the book of Galatians, that in chapter 1, that Paul said that if I fear man over fearing God, then I can't be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And it's true. And unfortunately, there are too many Christians, I think, and even those who are in ministry, that they fear man over fearing God. And whenever that happens, there's going to be a compromise in living for the Lord, and there's going to be a compromise in being a witness for Him and also proclaiming truth. Because you're fearing man, and I don't want to upset anybody. So it leads to compromise. But Nehemiah was one that he feared God, and he was one that feared God over fearing men. And same with these guys that were set up. And then also he set a watch. You remember? He set a watch so that they would continue to be protected. You see, he wasn't overconfident. He, he didn't say, well, the wall's been built, so you guys are good. Um, and that would have been very easy for them to do that. And you see, we're told in the New Testament, you and I, that we're to watch. We're not to go to sleep spiritually. We're not to to slumber. We're not to get sloppy. Um, but what we're to do is continue to watch. And you might be thinking, watch? What do you mean watch? Well, first of all, we're told that we're to be watching for the Lord, that we're to be the faithful servants that watch for the master's return. So keep our eyes on the Lord. And we're told that all throughout the scriptures. And then second of all, watch out for the enemy 
as he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And one of the things that he desires to do is come at us when we are sleeping. You remember that Jesus was in the garden and he told his disciples, I'm going to go over here and pray. Peter, James, and John, you guys watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And what happened? They fell asleep, didn't they? And he came back and he said, couldn't you watch and pray? But the thing is, as those guys were sleeping, what was happening? Judas was getting a detachment of troops to come and arrest Jesus. And know this, if you are asleep spiritually, the enemy is looking to come and get you. He's plotting and he's planning, and that's what he will do. But the other thing, too, is you don't want to be overconfident. And that's why I believe that Nehemiah set that watch on the wall, is so that they wouldn't be overconfident. Hey, we can't just think that we got the wall and nothing's going to happen to us. We need to make sure that we continue the watch. And so he's very wise in that. And you and I, we want to make sure that we're not overconfident spiritually. Because what will happen is we begin to meddle to our own hurt. You know, I believe that it was David. David was overconfident there in 2 Samuel. And he should have been out to war with the men, but he stayed behind. Oh, I'll just let Joab and the guys go and mop this war up. You know, I've been fighting and I'm 50 years old and you know, God has blessed me, and I think that he was overconfident, and all of a sudden, that caused him to fall into sin as he saw Bathsheba. So we want to make sure that we're not overconfident in our spiritual walk that causes us to get sloppy and to fall into temptation. So that's the things that we've seen very clearly. And then in chapter 8, we saw last week that Nehemiah continuing to make sure that the spiritual aspects, and I know I'm pressing this point, but it, we need to make sure that as we lead, moms and dads are families, and if you lead in any way in ministry, uh, if you um, are leading a group of men or a group of people in, in a home fellowship or a Bible study or discipleship, that we make sure that those spiritual aspects uh, are being worked out in our own lives. And so is Nehemiah that made sure that the this people came together and there was the reading of the word and as the reading of the word went forth the people began to weep and they began to mourn and why were they doing that they were doing that because they were convicted they were convicted by the word of god and you see sometimes we can read the word of god and we think oh lord that i i've missed it and and that's the thing about the word of god it, it touches our hearts it convicts us it doesn't condemn us you see there's a difference condemning means pushing you away that's what the enemy wants to do he wants to condemn you push you away from the lord the word of god will convict us in that it brings us closer to the lord and it will cause us to weep and mourn if we have a tender heart towards the Lord. That's one of the things that the Word of God is like light that illuminates. And, of course, Jesus, as we read in, in John chapter 1, that, that he is the light of the world. And the light came into the darkness, as John writes right away in the first chapter of John. And what light does is it just begins to illuminate and expose things and that's what was happening it brought conviction and they wept and they mourned but also it brought gladness to them and they celebrated the feast of of tabernacles and the feast of booths as they would make these little tents and they uh, were remembering how the lord brought them out of egypt into the land the goodness of the lord and it says there at the end of chapter eight that there was very great gladness because of that I think it reminds us of why we are doing what we're doing on June the 8th. Um, you know, to just stop and set up a big tent and, and just remember what the Lord has done for us here at Calvary Chapel, how faithful he has been. 
and the work that he has done and rejoice in that and remember that and I pray it's a very joyous occasion so very great gladness and now in chapter 9 we see that on the 24th day in verse 1 of the month the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So all of a sudden here we see they go from this very great gladness to all of a sudden we see that they are fasting, they're wearing sackcloth, they, they put dust on their heads. And we know that when we see that in the Old Testament, that it's a sign of repentance, isn't it? It's a sign of humbleness and repenting before the Lord. So in chapter 8, the Lord had called them to joy and gladness, and God wants us to experience his joy and grace and goodness as we draw close to him. And, but when that does happen again, as we draw close to the Lord, we can be so aware of our shortcomings. As I mentioned to you, John says that he is light. That Jesus, he is light. He is love. He is truth, not that he is a light. Jesus isn't a light bulb. He is light. The word exposes, you know, us as, you know, what light does is light storms the darkness. And, and Jesus came into the darkness. And, and when we opened up our hearts to Jesus Christ, the light of the world is like, man, light came into our life for the very first time. And many of you, you know what that was like. You didn't realize and we didn't realize how dark things were in our lives and how dark, you know, things were around us. Wow, this world is dark and it was dark in my life. But Jesus, the light of the world has brought light into my life true light they storm the darkness but that light not only illuminates and brings us joy and gladness as we come from the darkness into the light but it also exposes doesn't it it's kind of like i can uh dust in my office and then when i turn on the light all of a sudden i see all the dust that's still there it shows it and that's the thing about also is the word of God is coming forth and it's touching your heart as you're drawing close to the Lord. You've experienced that where you know you're forgiven. You have that joy, but you're humble to where you're aware of your great need for God's forgiveness and grace, our great need for him to just surrender completely to him. We see that through the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 6, it was Isaiah that he writes, when I saw the Lord high and lifted up, that I cried out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You remember in the New Testament, when, when Peter realized that Jesus was the Son of God, he fell to his knees and he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And you see, something will happen to us as we are just aware of how far we are from the holiness of God and our need for Jesus Christ as that light just exposes that in our lives. And, and that's a good thing. Again, it's to draw us to the Lord. It's to, to help us realize our need for Him. And you see, it humbles us. And it just gives us a contrite spirit. And we realize that, oh, Lord, you are so good and you are holy and I'm not. You see, when I see somebody who is humbled before the Lord and broken before the Lord, I know that that's a person who's been spending time with the Lord. 
And so that's what happens, and that's what was happening here. But I also want us to note something here. People oftentimes think, if I repent, I will be shown the goodness of God. And that is true, certainly. But the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. When we see and know the goodness of God, then it leads men, uh, verse 1, to repentance. And that's what's happening here. And notice that repentance, verse 3, comes by, first of all, the reading of the word. The reading of the word of God, it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as the word goes forth, it convicts us. It, it, it shows us where we've missed the mark. It shows us God's standard. It gives us instructions and his commands and his truths. And that's the working of the word of God in our lives. Second of all, we see here that it brought confession. It means confession, as you know, to be in agreement with God. I am in agreement with you, Lord, that this is sin. It's not excusing my sin. It's not saying, you know what, uh, but it's their fault or it's no big deal, God. It is confession means that, Lord, your word says that this is sin, that this is wrong, and I confess it, and I am a sinner. Please forgive me, Lord, and I am in agreement with you that this is wrong. And then thirdly, there was worship, as we see. And that worship comes out of a humbleness of heart and recognizing the goodness of God. So we continue reading in verse 4, then Joshua and these guys that are listed there, I won't go through all the names, stood on the stairs in the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Joshua and these guys, uh, would say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So we see here that this prayer that is now before us is actually the longest prayer in the Bible, some 34 verses. And as you look at the Old Testament, this, this prayer for the nation, recounting the, the history of uh, how God has worked uh, through uh, the nation, all the way from Genesis to the present. And it, it really is an amazing prayer as we look at this. But the, the um, you know, national prayers that are given in the Old Testament are found in Ezra chapter 9 that we saw recently, found in Daniel chapter 9. What was that prayer? Remember that Daniel was praying? Uh, before this, before the captivity was over, it was almost done, and Daniel's praying for the nation, saying, we have sinned, Lord, and we transgress. That's why we went off into captivity. And then Gabriel shows up in Daniel chapter 9 and says, Daniel, I want come to give you understanding that Daniel, that what is determined for your holy city and for your people are 70 weeks. And so you have the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, an amazing prophecy that we've gone over before in our study of the book of Daniel. And here we have a third great prayer, and that is in Daniel chapter 9. And we have here that, first of all, there's an acknowledgement of the greatness of the Lord. And oftentimes when you see prayers in the scripture and prayers from those who are men of faith um, that are given. Um, they will give these prayers, and, and even the women that have recorded in uh, 1 Samuel and, and uh, Mary, when she gives her prayer, when she found out that she's carrying the Christ child, there's always an acknowledgement of the greatness of God. That, Lord, that you are great, that you are the creator, and, and you preserved the heavens and the earth. You made everything. You hold them together. 
And again, as we saw that in, in John's gospel, you recall that John again, as he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, that, talking about Jesus, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ there in verse 14 that we went over. And John goes on to say, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the creator. And I want to remind you again, as I mentioned on Sunday, that Jesus is always presented as the creator God. He is never presented as a created being. He is always presented as one that existed from eternity past and is the creator of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that as he created all things, were created through him, and in him all things consist. In other words, that word consist in the Greek means are held together. And you think about this, this universe, and, and we talked about how it's summertime, you can sit outside, and when you go camping or out in the countryside, see the Milky Way galaxy, and and it's just the vastness of the universe. We can't even comprehend it. And it is kind of interesting. You made heaven and the heaven of heavens. What exactly does that mean? Heaven where we're going to be with the Lord? The heaven of heavens? Or is there a heaven of heavens, you know? We don't know what's all out there. But it's vast and, and it's incredible. And God made it all. And everything here on the earth and, and the seas and all is in them. And you preserve them all. You hold it all together, just like Colossians chapter 1 says. You see, it's important for us to understand again the greatness of God and how awesome God is, that he is the creator of the universe, and he holds it all together, all the atoms. Scientists don't know how an atom doesn't keep from, you know, because of, you know, the electrons and neutrons and protons, and, you know, why don't they just explode the atom? What holds the atom together? Scientists are still... You know, lots of physics behind it and stuff, but it's the Lord. He holds it all together. They'll use terms, well, when I was in high school, uh, 100 years ago, they used terms like atomic glue, you know, um, because opposites attract, you know, like particles, you know, expand. And what, what makes the atom from staying together? He holds it all together. Every bit of it. And listen, if he holds all that together, he can hold your life together as you're just surrendered to him and trust in him. And that's why Nehemiah was saying to them when things seemed overwhelming and, and we can't do this, Lord. It's, it's too hard. There's too much rubble. They said, remember the Lord great and awesome. And I know that it brings me strength when I feel like the rubble of the circumstances around me is just too great, Lord that the Lord is great and awesome and he's able to work and he's able to hold my life together as I just look to him. So he holds our lives together because he is great and awesome and after acknowledging who God is, how great he is, then he begins, or this prayer of the Levites it continues with you know, reflecting on what he has done. Verse 7, you are the Lord who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur and the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Gershites and give it, all his, give it to his descendants. You have performed your words for you are righteous. Another great encouragement for us here tonight. 
We know the story of Abraham, that God came to Abraham and said, leave your father's house, the you know, land of the Ur and the Chaldeans, and go to the place that I will show you and Sarah. And there I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. And Abraham was 75 years old, and Abraham had to wait for that promise to come to pass. 25 years, it wasn't until he was 100 years old where him and Sarah had Isaac, and the covenant would continue through him. Abraham, look at the stars, that your descendants are going to number the stars. And Abraham in chapter 15 believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was a man that, as it says here, that you have performed your words for you are righteous. And it tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, concerning Abraham, that he was fully convinced that what he had promised, that is what God had promised, that he is also able to perform. Listen, what God has promised to you through his word, he is able to perform. Do you know that? He's able to supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. He is the one that will bring comfort to you when you need it and strength to you. When we're afraid and he says, don't be afraid, know this, that he's the one that can bring that strength and courage to us when we need it. We can't do it on our own. But what God has promised to you, know this, that he is able to perform it. And maybe there's a promise in God's word that has been given to you. And, and like Abraham, you're waiting for that promise to come to pass. You're waiting for that promise really to be worked out in your life. Know this, that God is great and awesome, the creator of the universe. And just as he did with Abraham, being fully convinced that what God had promised, that God is able to perform it and he will perform it for you because his word is true. And every dot and tittle of his word and his promises will come to pass for us. So you stand on those promises and you trust in the Lord and you rest in his love. And we see that the prayer continues in verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, verse 11, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day by, uh, with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire. And you gave them light on the road which they should travel. So God brought them out of Egypt, as we know, in orderly ranks. They would come and they would be backed up against the Red Sea with two mountain ranges on either side. And you know the story how the Egyptians, as Pharaoh's heart was hardened, was told to go after the children of Israel. And so the Egyptian chariots, the most massive army on the face of the earth at that time, was going to come up and destroy the children of Israel. But then we see that God would part the Red Sea. And we know that they would cross on dry land that's emphasized here and again those skeptics of the bible will say oh it's not really the red sea it was the reed sea that's out there in the sinai peninsula and it's just swamp lands you know and they just kind of went through the swamps and that's what's really being talked about nowhere in the scripture does it give any indication of that always when it describes all the way through the old testament and in the new testament that there was the crossing of the red sea they crossed first of all on dry lands so their sandals and feet didn't get wet all right and then second of all that the the waters were deep there, there was a wall of water and that the egyptians drowned here it says as it gives the description here that you divided the sea they went through the midst of the sea that is the children of israel on the dry land the persecutors were thrown into the deep like a stone. 
that is, you know, into the mighty waters. So it's definitely the Red Sea. And, you know, and here's the thing. Always remember that if you can believe in Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth, the rest of the Bible is not hard to believe. It's not hard to believe that God can make a large fish to come along and swallow Jonah when he was thrown overboard. I don't have any problem at all with that. Or that he parted the Red Sea. Or he dropped manna from heaven or rock, water came from the rock. Whatever miracle that it is. Because he's the great and awesome God, isn't he? He's the creator of the universe. So here we see that, you know, the stories. They crossed and came into to Mount Sinai there. And, and um, it's interesting here that in verse 10 it says that you made a name for yourself. And I want to point that out because 40 years later in the book of Joshua, you recall when they came into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan River, and they sent the two spies into Jericho. And Rahab the harlot hid them, and she came. She had faith. She said, we heard of your God. We heard that, uh, that uh, your God parted the Red Sea, and he drowned the Egyptians. This is 40 years later. We, we know that story, and, and I know, I know personally that your God is the true God and he's given you this land it would be interesting in 1 Samuel chapter 4 400 years later you remember it's towards the end of the days of the judges and and here is Israel doing battle with the Philistines their hearts are not right with God the children of Israel at that time and they lose the battle and so they go back and they say, what are we going to do? Oh, this is what we'll do. We'll get the Ark of the Covenant. We will go get it, and it will save us. It? That's how far, you know, their hearts were, you know, away from the Lord at that time. So they get the Ark of the Covenant, as somebody came up with this bright idea. They take it out of the tabernacle. And there was a great shout in the camp of Israel. The Philistines on the other side of the valley, they hear it, and they said, oh, no, God is coming to their camp. The God who parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptians. Interesting, 400 years later, that story is still being told. But here is what intrigues me. Why didn't the Philistines, who are full of fear, and recognizing that God had parted the Red Sea and defeated the Egyptians, and as you go through the book of Exodus, you see that the Lord was, as he was pouring down the plagues upon Egypt, that I will have the other nations know that I am the Lord. When they see that I humble Pharaoh and I lead you out, I'm going to make a name for myself. And he did. And 400 years later, here the Philistines saying, oh, God, he's the one that parted the Red Sea. Why didn't they repent? Instead, they ended up trusting in Dagon, the fish god, and in their idols. Why didn't the other nations that heard about that repent like Rahab did? Uh, the fickleness of man, the, the hardness of heart. I think the greatest miracle of all, greater than parting of the Red Sea, is a changed life for Jesus Christ. And people see the reality of Jesus in your life. They're, you're a new man, a new woman in Christ, a new creation. And they'll see the reality of Christ, that newness of life that you're living, but yet they, they, they something different about you. This is real, I know, but yet they're hardening their hearts to the Lord. So we need to keep praying and we need to keep being a witness and keep loving them and sharing with them. So here, the, the story of, of the crossing um, of the, the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, verse 13, 
He came down also from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go into to possess the land which you have sworn to give them. So the Lord was leading the children of Israel, of course, by, as we read previously um, there in verse 12, that it was a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, and that would be over the tabernacle. And whenever that pillar would move, they would fold up the camp, they would fold up all their tents, and they would move in orderly ranks until that pillar stopped. And then they would set up camp again. And it, it was symbolizing, of course, the glory of God, the kind of glory of God, but also the presence of the Lord that was with them and leading them and guiding them. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. And, and we need to be where the Lord wants us to be. When he tells us to stay put, we need to stay put. When he wants us to move, we need to move and, uh, and follow him. Not get ahead of him, but we're not to also lag behind him. Stay right where he wants us to be. So those are powerful symbols that we have in the Old Testament. And also, we see that he would provide for them water from the rock. And we know that First Corinthians, Paul says that that rock is Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in John's gospel is that Jesus is going to talk about living water. And if you thirst, come and drink of me, is what he's going to say. And we'll get into that as we continue in John's gospel. But he also gave them bread from heaven. Jesus in John's gospel is going to talk about that in chapter 6, right? And then he's going to say, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread, the bread of life. And if you come and eat of me and drink of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. Believe in me is what he was saying. In verse 16, that they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to perf uh, pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. So, of course, they were ones that ended up, do you realize that Deuteronomy chapter 1 says that from the time of Mount Sinai, what they did is they went there, they received the precepts in, in the law, God made the covenant with them at that time as a nation that if you follow after me and follow my laws and my precepts and my commandments, then I'm going to bless you when you go into the land. If you forsake me and go after other gods, then you're going to be defeated by your enemies and you're going to go off into captivity. And so that's the covenant he made with them. And we know that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says from the time of Mount Sinai, after they built the tabernacle and they had the priests, you know, all uh, in line and the Levites ready to go, they were ready as a nation. The covenant was made with them. The laws were given to them. The tabernacle was made. The sacrificial system, they were all ready. And they could have moved from Mount Sinai up to the promised land in 11 days. It took them 40 years. Because of disobedience, and they stiffened their necks, hardened their necks. They were proud. They didn't believe in the word of the Lord given to them that I'll drive out the inhabitants. There's giants in the land. We can't go in. We're going to die in the land. Joshua and Caleb were saying, No, that doesn't matter. The Lord gave us the promise. Let's go in. And, but we're grasshoppers in their sights. Uh, so what? We'll gobble them up. Because God gave us a promise. And because they said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's stone Moses and Joshua. They ended up taking a lot of laps around Mount Sinai 40 years. 
you know, going into the promised land symbolizes that abundant life that the Lord has for you and for me. And a lot of times Christians, listen, end up taking laps around their own Mount Sinai out there in the wilderness and their spiritual life is very dry and it's very barren and it's very, very difficult because they don't walk in obedience. They don't trust in the Lord. They end up crying, hardening their hearts and their necks towards the Lord. Rebellion is in their life. And the Lord is saying, I wanted to do so much. You could have gone in 11 days. But it ended up that the wilderness out there became the you know, largest graveyard that ever existed in the history of mankind. That whole generation ended up dying except for Joshua and Caleb out there. And I just pray and hope for all of us that are here tonight. That as Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly that he desires to do that work as we just trust in him, as we soften our hearts towards him, and as we just walk in obedience with him, saying, Lord, I want to live for you. And we talked about that quite a bit in Galatians. What does it mean to walk in grace, to live in grace, to walk in the freedom and, and liberty that we have in Christ, that Paul said, stand fast in that. It means that I'm free to live for him and to walk in the spirit, not after the flesh and to trust in the Lord in everything in my life. And as you do, you're going to experience that abundant life. So we see that here they are stiffening their necks, and, and um, they were doing that. But God declared that, that he's gracious and merciful. Notice verse 17, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. He did not forsake them. Some people think that God was just, you know, really mean and judgmental. But his name is proclaimed here, just as it was to Moses. Merciful, slow to anger, gracious, abundant in kindness. And yet they still continue to harden their necks and hearts against God's goodness. God protected them and provided them. And it's interesting in verse 18, even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God, they brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. God was still providing and good to them. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Isn't that amazing? So their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Interesting. And moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they, take, they took possession of the land of Shihon and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bazan. And you also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. And so the people went in, verse 24, and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wish. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods and cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So, of course, again, the, the time of the judges... Um, I mean, the 
time of Joshua, the days of Joshua, um, that you see that um, they went into the land. And Joshua is such a wonderful book because they went into the land, they took the land, God fulfilled his promise to them, and uh, it was wonderful to, um, to, to see what God had done in his faithfulness to them at that time. But as I read this, as he talks about they possessed uh, the land and the goodness of the land and, and delighted themselves, um, I can't help but think about what David wrote in Psalm 37. Let me read it to you, but you can read it later, that David writes this, Trust in the Lord and do good, and dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, and do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Trust in the Lord, do good, and dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Feed on his faithfulness. And delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Really, I'll get whatever it is that I want? No, delight yourself in the Lord. And as you delight yourself in the Lord, as you feed on his goodness and his faithfulness, then what's going to happen is he's going to change your heart, and you're just going to be wanting to prioritize the things of the Lord and the kingdom of God and just walk in and enjoying the Lord. But feed on his goodness. And that's what happened during the days of Joshua. And verse 26 says, we see that nevertheless they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who pressed them and in the time of their trouble. And when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Of course, talking about the days of the judges, a cycle of sin for 400 years as they would rebel against the Lord, find themselves in bondage to the enemy, and then God would raise up a leader, a, a judge to deliver them, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. In verse 28, but they, after they had rest, they did uh, again evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, and stiffened their necks, and would not not here yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets yet they would not lessen therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land nevertheless in your great mercy you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them for you are God gracious and merciful so we see here that as they continue just praying they're recognizing that they rebelled in you know those books of first are um, books of First uh, and Second Kings that we saw and Second uh, Chronicles that there was rebellion in the land and again falling into false worship and the Lord sent the prophets in His mercy and His grace turn back to me believe in me give up those idols but they would not and of course the house of Israel in 720 BC went off into captivity by the Assyrians and then the house of Judah in 605 BC by the Babylonians. 
And so they're just recognizing and confessing their sins before the Lord, their nation, and what they had done. And verse 32, Now therefore, God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes and the priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, faithfully but we have done wickedly neither our kings nor our princes our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them for they have not served you in their kingdom or in, in the many good things that you gave them or in a large and rich land which you set before them nor did they turn from their wicked works and so here we see that again that they're just recognizing here we are servants today in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, verse 36, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sin, and also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle and their pleasure, and we are in great distress. In other words, they realize that they were servants to Persia, even though they were able to come back to the land, and after the Medo-Persian Empire, who was it? The Greeks, right? And after the Greeks, who was it in the time of Jesus? It was the Romans. They were in captivity to somebody. God wanted to do so much with them. And yet, because of their sin and rebellion and disobedience, we see that they ended up going off into captivity, and they're just admitting that. But I want us to notice something here quickly before we end. That you have dealt faithfully. You are just in all that has befallen us. You know, one of the things that the Bible declares that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true. He was merciful. He was gracious to this nation. But I want to give you another application. Because Revelation chapter 19 tells us that one day when we're in heaven, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's going to be that declaration that is made from heaven after all the judgments are poured out on a Christ-rejected world, that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your decisions, O Lord. And we know that the Lord will judge sin, and he's going to judge a Christ-rejected world, just as he judged his nation here because of their disobedience, the covenant that he made with Moses. They broke that covenant. Maybe you're here tonight, though, and maybe you're going through difficulty. And maybe you're going through hard times. And sometimes as Christians, we don't know why. Maybe you've gone through some loss. And it isn't because God is judging you. You see, Jesus took the judgment for you on Calvary's cross. He took the judgment for your sins upon the cross. So sometimes Christians will come to me and they say, I, I experienced this loss, and why did this happen, and why am I facing this, and I don't know why. I don't know why. Am I being judged? No. I ran into a, a young lady that hadn't seen for over a year, and she said, Pastor Jeff, as I was in the store, and and I was asking her, how are you doing? And she said, I lost a child. And I couldn't even get out of bed. Did I, did I do something wrong? And 
is God judging me? And I said, oh, no. And I don't know why you lost your child. And oftentimes as a pastor, I'm asked that, you know, why this difficulty? Why the circumstance? Why the loss? And it would be unjust and unfair for me to try to answer that. I don't know why. But I do know this. That one day that we will all be together and we will say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And we don't understand it now on this side of eternity. And we will not understand it. And I don't understand why things happen. But I know that in eternity's views and values, somehow, some way, we will all stand together and say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And that's hard when we're going through difficulties and trials right now and circumstances and, and loss and tragedy even. But God is good and he's merciful. And when we are confronted with those things that we don't understand, we can fall back on the things that we do understand. The goodness and the mercy of God that's being proclaimed in this chapter, he was merciful and kind. And know this, that he wants to work in your life. And even in the loss, he will not forsake you. He did not forsake them. And he is with you to strengthen you and to comfort you. And you have a body of believers that are here to pray for you and encourage you and to lift you up. Fall back on the things you do understand. The goodness and the mercy of God. And the Lord loves you. And if we can trust him with our salvation then we can trust him with what he's doing in our lives. And we will go through the trials and the difficulties and the heartaches and the losses in our lives. Certainly we will do. But don't think that God is against you. God is for you and he loves you. And he wants to work and you keep under the shadow of his wings and under his pavilion, all right? And stay there in a place of comfort and strength and drawing close to him. It's not a time to run away from him or to, to say, forget this. It's a time to draw close to him at those times. And that can be hard, I understand. But righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. We will say, one day, on the other side of eternity, Lord, truly you are good and righteous and true. And I can trust you with my salvation. I can trust you with my heart. I can trust you with whatever's going on in my life because you are the great and awesome God, the creator of the universe. And Lord, you promise that you will never leave me or forsake me. So Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this prayer as we read it, to be able to to look at it and sometimes it's hard as we read the history of what your people that you love so much what they went through but lord we see that your goodness and graciousness and kindness and mercy is proclaimed in this and we don't want to forget that and lord i pray that as christians as believers in you we would know that you've given us of the Holy Spirit 
to lead us and to guide us in everything. And Father, I pray that we would just walk after the Spirit. And Lord, that we would look to you each and every day to draw strength from you and wisdom. How we need you, Lord. I do pray if there is anybody that happens to be here or listening on live stream that maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is eternal life, the author of eternal life, none other. No one else died for you. No one else conquered the grave and rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. Only Jesus did. And just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, same with us as we come in faith, surrendering our hearts to Jesus in need of him because we've all sinned. But Jesus took the judgment for your sin. All of your sins were placed upon him. And all you have to do is come and receive that free gift of salvation. He's not going to force his way into your life. But he's calling you to come. If you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. It means that you recognize that you're a sinner and you repent and turn to Jesus, your only hope, and say, Jesus, I need you. And you can pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior personally. I confess I'm a sinner. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me. Thank you. And that you rose from the grave and you're alive. And I open my heart to you right now to let you in. My life is not its own. I surrender to you and help me to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for eternal life promised to me. Oh, Father, I pray for all of us that maybe some are here and really going through some loss or difficulties and heartache. I pray that they would know that you love them, you see them, you're desiring to work, and we may not understand it all. But Lord, we can trust you and rest in your love and whatever you're doing because you are righteous and gracious and merciful and true. And Lord, I pray that you bring comfort to those who need comfort and strength to those, Lord, who are tired and who are hurting those who are confused. That, Lord, that you give them a peace that passes understanding. That you would give them joy unspeakable. And, Lord, that we would just rest in your arms, your loving arms. And we would stand on your promises. And, Lord, that we would just continue to walk with you. Sustain us. Strengthen us. Give us wisdom, Lord. And may we go out of this place rejoicing because we know that you are faithful. You are faithful to your people.